Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast. Today's guest, one of Australia's leading business strategists and performance specialists, an entrepreneur, dedicated father and self-proclaimed spiritual warrior. He also hosts his successful podcast, Unstoppable, that covers topics around reaching your highest potential. During his career, he's worked with over 100,000 businesses from across 11 countries in 154 different industries through his seminars and workshops, helping them make hundreds of millions of dollars. He doesn't use vague ideas. He focuses on teaching tools, strategies, and tactics that work to grow businesses. He began his first business at 23 years old and has overcome many obstacles since then. He's had six near-death experiences, including a near-fatal stroke and another serious accident that doctors said would leave him physically disabled. He's dedicated to pushing limits and he's an extreme sportsman, skydiver and martial artist, and he prioritizes his mental well-being too, using meditation and spirituality to find peace in all situations, which is something we can all learn from. Give it up for the awesome Cohen Ray! I've got him at long last. He decides to come on the show. And not only does he come on the show, he comes half an hour early. How about that? Welcome, uh, Kerwin Ray. <laughs> mate, uh, you're very welcome, Spencer. Great to be here. It's the only thing that I want to come early for. So uh, thanks for having me, mate. <laughs> well, um, you know, it's been just for everyone that's listening to this right now. As you know, I try and get the great guests that I can on the show. But Kerwin has been a difficult bugger to get on the show over recent time. He really has. So clearly his diary is very busy. So I really appreciate you taking time to come and talk to us. For the 3% pleasure. of the people that Real live pleasure. on the planet that don't know who the hell you are, could you please introduce yourself? Look, I normally introduce myself as an model for Calvin Klein, um, you know, because most of the time I just, I hate that question at the best of days. Uh, and I usually get at least a little bit of a giggle. And I, if people laugh, I say, if I walked in backwards, you wouldn't be laughing so hard. But uh, truth is, mate, for the last almost 30 years now, I've been obsessed with human performance, specifically in the area. And I guess you could say my commercial applications in the area of business, specifically fast growth. Um, you know, I got into my first business in my early 20s and I was someone that wasn't very, I wasn't the ideal employee, but someone who has ADHD uh, and dyslexia, if things don't move very quickly, I get bored. And so I had the, 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 the option to, you know, work for someone else, which just wasn't an option or work for myself, which I failed spectacularly three times with before I realized that I did need some help, but I realized that at the same time I needed things to move fast. And so then I developed a, I guess you could say a repertoire and a level of models and systems and processes around l making businesses grow quickly. But um, in my essence, I am just obsessed with high performance, you know, whether it be in the area of business or sport or military or parenting, you know, in the adrenaline space, I just love being able to do things that, you know, people struggle to do and then showing people who don't think that they can do them how to do them themselves. Okay, I'm, I'm glad that you did that, but also I'm glad that you just said that at the beginning that you find it hard to introduce yourself because I really resonate with that. I understand that as well. The clubhouse has become very kind of trendy recently and you're forever having to introduce yourself on clubhouse. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just sick of saying yeah. who I am. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I get it. I hate that question. Look, lots, lots, of, lots of people have had the benefit of being coached, mentored, exposed to you to try and help understand their own businesses and how they move forward and become more successful in business and in life. Where did it start for yes. you in terms of you identifying that you needed help and who helped you? 
Yeah, look, that's a really good question. I um, uh, I was very lucky. I, my mum was a clairvoyant and psychic, and my dad was um, a world-leading economist, commissioner of inquiries for the OECD for about 12 years in Paris, and then the CEO of a um, you know one of the top-tier economics firms over here. My mum became quite entrepreneurial when I was about nine years of age. Up until then, she'd been mostly a, a single mum on a pension. So I got exposed to many aspects of a range of different variables as a kid growing up. Um, but in terms of m- m- when I got into business, my first few businesses failed quite spectacularly. It was my third business where I actually got help. And it's interesting because I often say, Spencer, and maybe you can relate to this, that you know, the reason that most of us become entrepreneurs is we hate being told what to do. And I'm one of those people. I hate being told what to do. But then what I realized was when I got into business, I had no f-ing clue what I was doing. And if you hate being told what to do and you don't know what to do, in most cases, you won't ask. And you'd rather eat shit and fail rather than ask for help. And I did that, uh, you know, a couple of times quite spectacularly. And, uh, you know, the beautiful thing about this day and age is once upon a time, you could go bust in a business and you go down to zero. But because we live in this age where we have access to, you know, in some cases, infinite levels of funds in the form of debt, you know, we can go screaming past zero. And, um, you know, at the age of 23, I was close to $200,000 in debt after my last business had failed. Uh, And then I went and worked for a guy called Stephen Covey, who wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I had the ability to execute my craft with him because I was very good in the area of marketing. I was very good in the area of sales, very good in the area of, you know, motivate teams and and get teams moving. Um, But when I um, uh, left Stephen and I started my my next endeavor, the first thing I did, and, and it was kind of really interesting, the next thing I did is I actually bought a business model. So rather than start my own business, I bought a licensing model to someone else's business. But by virtue of the license that I bought and the business that I invested in, I actually got the owner, the entrepreneur of that business who, you know, at the time was probably considered to be the Jay Abrahams of Australia. And um, he mentored me for, you know, a good 18 months. And that really, you know, it really was the difference that made the difference. And that's where I guess you could say I was introduced to the power of support. I was introduced to the power of mentoring. I was introduced to the power of, you know, coaching because I've been an athlete, you know, for at this point most of my life. So I knew, I, I knew inadvertently how important coaching was if you wanted to be an elite performer but I'd never made the connection in the business space. Um, and that first mentor that I had, his name is Peter Sun. And in Sunny Pete, six foot four, Czechoslovakian. Uh, look, you know, some people say, he, you know, some people get hit with the ugly stick. The whole f- tree fell on this guy, let me tell you right now. And he is an incredible human being. And he taught me a lot of things, one of them specifically the importance of humor uh, and how to tell a good joke. And uh, yeah, he really did, re- did support me for that period that kind of launched me. But to be honest, mate, I've never been someone who's been very good. And maybe like many other people who are listening to this, I've never been someone who has organically been good at asking for help. I've always been someone who's been a natural problem solver. And I've tried to solve the majority of my problems and the world's problems and my clients' problems in my head um, you know, before I actually put either pen to paper or um, you know, my foot to the pavement. But um, you know, now, fast forward, let's call it, what is it, almost 25 years later, I'm still someone who is getting better at you know, the process of asking for help and the process of getting help. And I wouldn't be where I am today if not for, you know, the amount of help that I have. And I have got an incredible team, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70 guys in our team here in Sydney and Byron Bay. Um, we have two offices spread across the, the East Coast. And if not for those guys, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today. You say that, but you actually just said something important then because you said that you're getting better at it. So yes. is, is, does ego get in the way of it? Is that the reason? Because if we take the simple example of asking for directions before we had sat nav yep. all those years ago, the man would sit in the car, be lost as he's trying to find somewhere. The wife would say, well, why don't you ask that guy for directions? No, 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 it's all right. It's all right. I'll, uh, I'll find the way. We'll look at the map. 
Well, it's kind of interesting because I'm the first person to ask for directions. Like if I walk into a supermarket <laughs> with my partner and we're looking for something, I will walk straight up to the first cashier that I, that I see and I'll say, do you know where this is? So I love asking for direction. I love direction. But I don't know, when it comes to, and again, and I've been getting into a lot of astrology lately, and uh, you know, depending on what your temperature is for that, what's interesting in my chart is I am someone that likes to work things out in my head. Um, and for some people, that could be quite arduous or even torturous, whereas for me, it's almost like ping pong. I love to sit down and work things out. So, you know, I would like to think, and it depends on who you ask, I guess, but if anyone, you know, knows me well enough would know, I am, one of my highest values is humility. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm willing to fall on my sword any day of the week. I'm the first person to admit when I make a mistake. I'm the first person to admit when I do something wrong. Um, and I have the vulnerability to be able to, you know, talk about my mistakes openly and honestly, you know, with everything from parenting to mental health and addiction. I've got no issue with going there. But when it comes to certain things... I don't know, mate. I'm st as I said, I'm still working it out when it comes to asking for help. It's taken me 20 years in the current business that I'm in to uh, get to a level where I now have a complete C-suite of executives. You know, we have a C-suite executive in the area of marketing, operations, sales, finance, legal, uh, and even events. And um, you know, up until that point, I guess you could say that, which is probably around four years ago when that, that C-suite started to develop, you know, I was very much running the business myself. You know, at, at four years ago, I think we had like 50 people in the team. We got up to like 90 at one stage, but 50 people in the team. And I was hands-on every day. You know, I was in the events department. I was in the sales department. I was in the, I was basically the marketing manager, the sales manager, the operations manager, the CEO. And I was doing so many things in the business, like so many people can relate to. But I, you know, I started to realize that there was a lot of sacrifices, sacrifices being made with my time. Um, and with my health, and one of the biggest things that created the shift for me was when my, I found out my ex-wife was was pregnant, uh, and that was the, I guess you could say, one of the greatest iterations that I went through my business, and I just hit everything with a simple stick, uh, and simplified everything, streamlined everything, narrowed everything down, but then he was born, and he was you know, he turned seven in January, but it's literally taken me, since he, the day he was born, seven years of consistent focus to be able to get to a point where I have as much of the business that I can put under management as possible. And the challenge that I have being a personal brand, and you probably know this very well yourself, Spencer, is when you're a personal brand, it's not like necessarily other businesses. And I don't want to say my business is different because if people come to my program, I have this program called Nail It and Scale It uh, and K to Elite. And people come to my program and they say, oh, but Kerwin, my business is different. I find them $500 on the spot. You know, for saying that, because like you said, you know, you can go to anywhere in the world and people say, oh, it's different here. You're like, no, it's not. Everyone's the same. It's just a different country, you know, different creeds, cultures, colors, you know, orientations. But ultimately, you know, human beings are ultimately very much the same. Um, and it's very true from the business context. But in the personal brand space, you know, there's a lot more riding on the line yeah, as an entrepreneur. Because if, you know, if, you're, if you've got a, you know, a car wash or, um, you know, or, or, or a bakery and that, that, that business goes down, unless you are naming that business your personal name, there's no reputational damage that is going to prevent you from going back and having another crack. In this business, I just take everything incredibly personally because it is a personal brand and not from the context of offense, from the context of wanting to be the very best when it comes to delivering our products and services, the very best when it comes to the customer experiences uh, and the very best in terms of my ability to be able to deliver you know, what I would consider to be the most cutting edge information when it comes to human performance and the most cutting edge information when it comes to fast growth business and showing people and supporting people in the, in the process of growing quickly. A business is just a group of people, no matter what that business is. It will always be a group of people coming together. You talk about a personal brand. A lot of people are trying to establish a personal brand themselves and they 
They often struggle because they're pushing out stuff on social media, which maybe has a somewhat confusing message. People get wrapped up in colors and fonts and uh, stationery and stuff like that as they try and put this personal brand together, which to me, is, is, is as I look at it, it's very frustrating. When I coach people, it's like, why are these things important? Why are you hung up on that? Why don't you just focus on the problem you're trying to solve and keep talking about the problem that you're trying to solve? When you look at people like you, whether it's Gary Vee, Tony Robbins, Grant Cardone, people, people that are in a similar space, they've had to work extremely hard to be able to create that brand. If you were to put a time scale on how much um, effort you'd have to put in and over what period consistently to get somewhere, wh- what do you think is a fair gauge for <laughs> average people to think about? You know, it's funny because um, my brand blew up on social media in 2016 off the back of me hiring Gary Vaynerchuk in 2015 in November. Uh, I hired him to come and speak to my K2 elites. My K2 elites are clients that I work with typically over a 12-month to six-year period. Uh, my Nail It and Scale It clients are clients that I work with immersed in an immersive environment over a three-day period. But I hired Gary to come in and speak to our K2 elites. And uh, at the time, I had 52,000 followers on Facebook and very poor levels of engagement. Uh, and a non-existent Instagram profile. Oh, no, I actually think I had 119, I had school uh, Instagram followers at the time. And I uh, went to the back of the room to speak to Gary before he came on. And I know Gary's a smart guy. And I had expected that he would have checked out my Facebook profile because I'd heard him speak a number of times previously and how he checks out everyone's profile before he get, get, you know, goes to the conference. And I, I don't know why, but for some reason, I was expecting him to give me at least a little bit of a pat on the back. And I got up to the back of the room and he spent 15 minutes surgically dismembering me and telling, you know, in the nicest possible way, telling me how f***ed I was and how bad my social media was. And again, I am someone, and I might not necessarily be good at asking help, but when people offer me help, I don't care if it's the bag lady at the IGA or Coles. I am a person, and my mum taught me this, because the very first school that I went to was actually a special school. And this is not, this is not something to poke fun at. You know, I was at a school that was a mixed school of special, you know, special needs and disabled disabled children, and a normal school. And so I was, you know, immersed in an alternative environment from a very early age. But one of the things that I've learned is you can learn from everyone. And when people have the time to give me service and give me, you know, feedback, especially someone like Gary, I literally pull out my sword, I fall on it, and I just sit down and go, "I'm listening." And so Gary gave me the opportunity to jump on my sword about 50 times in less than 15 minutes. But what was interesting is I went home that, that, um, uh, that Christmas and you know, I normally would take three to four weeks off. And this Christmas, something was different. I was like, something's got to change. And I don't, didn't know what it was going to be. Came back in early 2016. I was like, right, social media, that's going to be the game changer. And this is in 2016. And I went and hired a videographer and, and fired him exactly six weeks later. He was hopeless. <laughs> and then it was in May of 2016, I found Matthias who I call my Swedish porn filmmaker. He's an incredible human being and young filmmaker, gamer at the time. And he came on board and we, he started filming videos and, and filming everything that I did. And us cre- and we were creating you know, a range of different pieces of content from little created videos of, here's the five things you need to know when it comes to having a tough conversation. But he was documenting everything that I did. And we launched this um, uh, docu-series called The Social Experiment. And I don't know if you've seen this on YouTube. It was the very first docu-series that we did. Um, I think, Paul, how many episodes long was it? I think from memory it was like 30-something episodes long. But the episodes were anywhere between 20 minutes and an hour. And it basically documented our transition from being a traditional style of marketing business to the more omnipresent, you know, social, engaged uh, marketing business. And what was interesting is we blew up quite quickly from there. 
And I've had that many people who've come up to me, man, you've really done really well in a very short period of time, haven't you? You know, you came on my radar and only in like 2016 and look at you now. And it's like, yep, you know, it only took me, uh, you know, let's call it 20 years of hard work to get to where I am today. And so when you ask that question, it's a really loaded one. And I know this is a long answer, but it's one that's required in order for people to have a realistic expectation of what's required. One of the most damaging things in the high performance environment is stress. And what that does to the psychology, what that does to the physiology, the biology and everything else involved. And when you set unrealistic expectations of performance, you in most cases induce greater, higher levels and potential and triggers for stress to be introduced into your life. And so, you know, when I say, when people come to me and go, I've just started my business, say, great, what's the goal? What's the big goal you have for the next 12 months? And nine out of 10 times, it's a financial one. And they say, I want to make a, guess how much? Million dollars. What's the magic number? A million bucks. And I'm like, well, you're in for a rude f***ing shock, pal. Because on average, it takes seven to 10 years for the average business owner to reach a million bucks. But here's the, really, this, you know, here's the, really, here's the part that really makes me sound like a motivational speaker. There's about 1.2% of businesses or 1.8% of businesses that start today that will be alive in 10 years from now. So the chances of you making a million bucks are ridiculously low but more importantly the chances of you even being alive as a business in 10 years from now are even lower so you know I say to people if you want to have a realistic perspective give yourself at a minimum 10 years you know I, I read an article earlier today about uh, Cody Simpson Cody Simpson who um, you know the musician and he's now trying out for the Olympics in the 200 meter butterfly and he was an Australian champion at the age of 13, gave it away for music, you know, chased his dream, wrote poetry, toured the world, did incredible things. And then at the age of 22, he's like, what? I really want, I've got this itch, I want to go and scratch it. I want to go back and I want to compete in the Olympics. And he made, you know, he, he, he went to the Olympic trials and he actually um, qualified for the Olympic trials. But here's the thing. He went and got advice from Michael Phelps. Now, he's already at elite level of performance, okay? He's not starting from scratch. He's not like a fat musician, you know, smoking lots of weed, drinking lots of alcohol, going, you know what? I'm going to go and swim for Australia. No, he was already a pedigree champion. He took a 10-year hiatus, kept swimming in the meantime, came back, went and spoke to what would be arguably one of the most, you know, um, highest performing athletes in the pool in the world, Michael Phelps. And Michael Phelps said to him, at a minimum, you've got to give this four years to really know if you can do it. And obviously, that's the window that he's got. And so as an athlete, as a high-performance athlete, at the highest level of competition in the amateur sport, if you want to go at the Olympics, you've already been training for 10 years, it's going to take you at least another four years. If you are starting from scratch today, I say at a minimum, you need to give it at least five to 10 years. At a minimum, I would suggest even seven to 10 years with a very realistic... Because here's the thing. Most people overestimate themselves in the short term and they underestimate themselves massively in the long term. You can achieve, if you set a, a target to make a million dollars in the next 12 months, you are going to experience stress because guaranteed nine months from now, you'll be at negative something, okay? You might be at positive something, but for the most part, you'll probably be at negative something. But I guarantee you, if you set a goal in the next 10 years that you want to make $10 million, making 10 million bucks in the next 10 years is far more achievable than making a million dollars from scratch in the next 12 months. So a window is incredibly performance in order to induce and, and be, have access to what's required to succeed at that level. Really valuable, really valuable. Let's talk about people that, that are thinking about their online strategies, their online businesses, starting from scratch, all this kind of stuff. I've learned after creating content now for the best part of, what are we into, five years? Four or five years creating content consistently. So yeah, similar, similar time to you actually. It was, yeah, it was, I remember my first video. I don't ever want to see that with anybody ever again, but um, I remember my first video. But a lot of people... <laughs> um, 
<laughs> can I, well, before you go there, can I just share something really funny? Because it's, it's just top of mind. My very first video that I created was in 2008. It was a three-minute video. It took me eight hours to film. I had a script. And in the end, we still had to splice together four videos just for it to make print or make, uh, make the web. So I get it. Keep going. Sorry, mate. Oh, horrific, horrific. Now, but a lot, a lot of people seem to think that, you know, going online, using social media, be able to build a brand quickly, be able to sell their products very quickly. And if not that, they're going to go down the e-com route and get somewhere very quickly with that. And as you say, and, and I agree with you, most people fail. I think that a lot of people want to be entrepreneurs, but I'm not entirely sure that everybody's made to be an entrepreneur. Now, you lent into something earlier about essentially with the license deal, I would argue that that's potentially an entrepreneur type uh, opportunity that you got involved with. People think about entrepreneur and it's kind of got this word, this quite sexy word for a lot of people. For me, that means small business owner. But I found that my success came from being an entrepreneur more than an entrepreneur. Actually, being an entrepreneur was quite a scary environment for me. Do you think that people just, just because they glamorize it so much, they think it's sexy before they realize what's involved? I think they do. Entrepreneurs become quite celebrity, but at the same time, I don't think everyone has the mental resilience and the mental grit that's required in order to endure the levels of stress that being an entrepreneur require. And, and here's two things. There are a lot of people who are in business, Spencer, but they're not entrepreneurs. You know, there's a lot of people who are in the online space or the e-commerce space, but they're not entrepreneurs. And the way I distinguish an entrepreneur from someone who is in business is a very clear standard. Are you making money? And not are you just able to pay your bills? Are you, be, are you able to make serious, considerable money? Because some people say, well, it comes down to how many scars you've got. Oh, look, I don't necessarily agree with that. Although once upon a time, perhaps I would have lent into that argument. But here's what I know. Being an entrepreneur is the exact same thing as being an elite professional athlete. Okay, anyone can compete as an amateur in any sport should they wish. Okay, but if you want to achieve the highest levels of any discipline in an elite sports environment, which is AKA the professional environment, how do? What is it apart from skill? And I'm going to ask you this question. I'm not going to. I'm going to turn the tables just for a second. Apart from skill, what is the number one thing that separates an amateur athlete from a professional athlete? I think there's a number of things. It's got, it's got to be dedication and commitment to the strategy, hasn't it? You, every day, all I'll, day. I'll answer the question like. for you. Here's, here's, here's what eliminates someone to be able to compete at the Olympics if they've been classified as a professional athlete. You get paid. The moment you get paid, you're now in the professional category. And in order to elevate yourself in the professional categories, the more you get paid, the higher you actually attain the level or, or the skill in the professional environment. You know, there's a reason that Federer gets paid the amount of money that he does. There's a reason that the Dokic gets paid the amount of money that he does. There's a reason that people like Tiger Woods in his heyday and even today, you know, before he had the accident, got paid the money that they do because they're the highest levels of their professional capabilities. And so to me, if we can call esports people, and I have no disrespect, I have respect for everyone who has the ability to apply themselves at a discipline for an extended period of time to reach the top of their game. But right now, we've got esports. Okay, esports is one of the big, fastest growing sports in the world. And we have kids, you know, as young as 20, 18, 15, making millions of dollars, in some cases, 20, 30 million dollars a year as an esports professional. And up until that point, all you need to know how to do was, you know, play Nintendo and drink Red Bull and have a pack of twi uh, tw Twisties or a few packs of Twisties a day. 
Yet, if you could achieve that highest level of professionalism and achieve that, 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 that criteria, you're an elite professional sports person. So why, why, God, why do we not classify entrepreneurs in the same way? And here's the thing. When I look at esports, when I look at golf, when I look at tennis, and then I look at entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship is the toughest professional sport on the planet. And I'll tell you why, because when you play tennis, you're only competing. You are competing for a fraction of the time that you're actually awake. Okay, when you're playing golf, you're only competing at a professional level for a fraction of the time that you're awake. Okay, when you're competing as an esports, you know, athlete, you're only competing for a fraction of the time that you're actually awake. As an entrepreneur, you're competing in most cases eight hours a day. Eight hours a day, we go to competition. Yet in most cases, most entrepreneurs, they don't rest, they don't recover, they don't train, they have poor nutrition, poor hydration, and really bad methods of recovery. And they wonder why they can't be competitive. They wonder why they can't make money. And I think one of the biggest gaps that we have right now when it comes to entrepreneurship is then people, don't, people treat it like it's a fucking hobby. And if you treat tennis like a hobby, you're never going to be a professional. If you treat golf like a hobby, you're never going to be a fucking professional. If you want to be a professional, elite professional a business person, aka what I classify an entrepreneur, then you've got to take this shit seriously. You need to be getting at least you know six to eight hours sleep every night. You need to be watching what the fuck you put in your in your mouth and what you eat. You need to be watching how much you know you drink from an alcohol caffeine perspective, but specifically from a clean substance, hydrated substance, water perspective. You've got to be very cautious about who you're allowing into your brain from a from a psychological perspective. If you and I and I, I mark my words, the reason there's such a high level of catastrophe such a high level of failure in the in the business space is because people don't treat it like a business they treat it like a hobby and as a result they end up as a casualty and if you or i right now tried to go into any elite professional circuit that we've got zero experience in and we tried to compete at you know in the grand slams whether it be golf or tennis or anything else what do you think you and i would happen to you and i literally within the first three months we would be burnt out and yep. thrown aside yeah and this is exactly what is happening in the entrepreneurial space. People are jumping into a professional sport with no base fitness, no base training, no support, no understanding of the importance of hydration, nutrition, everything else involved. There was a great book uh, called The Power of Full Engagement that was written, oh God, I think it was in the late 90s, uh, where they looked, I don't know if you've read it, but they looked at business as the professional athlete. And they went, okay, how much time does an athlete actually spend in competition? It's about 2% of the time. How much time do they actually spend in rest and recovery? It was about 70% of the time. How much time do they actually spend in training and preparation? And it was, let's call it, you know, 26% of the time. Now you flip the lid. How much time as business owners are we spending in competition? You know, 80% of the time. But then you ask the question, how much time are you spending in rest and recovery? Nothing. How much time are you spending in training and development to become a better athlete? Nothing. Then why the f*** do you think you're failing? You know, it's not rocket science. When you understand the fundamentals of performance, it's very easy to work out where people go wrong. When you look at the, the physical performance, obviously being an elite athlete and understanding this in detail, people clearly take it very lightly. They don't take their food intake seriously, their exercise seriously and stuff like that, clearly, because we can see that from just walking down the street and looking at them. But what would be the, the, the simple steps? You've got this guy, he's got his business plan, he's come to see you, okay, he knows where he wants to go. He hasn't said a million dollars in 12 months. He said 10 million in 10 years. So you've got some thumbs up there. You look at his business strategy, it's on point. Point, okay, but you're looking at him and you're like, mate, okay, there's a few things we need to change about how you behave. 
So where would you start? I mean, in one of your videos, you talk a lot about hydration, about how much water you consume and not tap water um, first thing in the, in the day. And for me, I consume quite, not quite that much, but on the way to the gym in the morning, I'm drinking as much as I can before I start and then at the gym and then on the way home. But a lot of people don't take that seriously and don't understand that. So where would you start? Look, I think there's, there's fundamentals in, area, in every area. There's fundamentals when it comes to what you put in your mouth and what you put in the body. And there are fundamentals in terms of the strategies and the tactics, aka the moves that you execute when you're on the tennis court. So for me, we, we, they're not the same thing. On the tennis court, you fundamentally got, and I don't know, I don't play tennis, and so this is a really good metaphor, but I'm going <laughs> to assume there's fundamentally eight to, 12, 8 to 12 shots, I would assume. You've got your serve, you've got your return, you've got your backhand, your forehand, you know, your slice and everything else in between. And your job as an amateur or as a beginner is to learn how to practice those fundamentals as much as you possibly can to the point where those fundamentals become an autonomous response depending on where the ball lands in front of you. And then you start to realize, hmm, you know what? There's a correlation between what I put in my body and my ability to move when I actually get in the game. And so for me, there are fundamentals in the area of body, and that is you know, solid levels of hydration. I drink a liter of water in most cases before I get out of bed every morning. You know, I, don't, I have an 18-hour window every single day where I'm fasting. And when I do eat, you know, in most cases, I'm eating very clean. And to be honest, the last nine weeks, I've been no sugar, no alcohol, nothing fun. Uh, but for the most time, even when I am having, you know, a little bit of stuff in my diet, I still don't veer that far outside. And I have a sweet tooth, but I'm still very careful about what I put in my body. Because when you're conscious of what you put in your body, and when you're conscious of how it affects your performance, and you're clear on what's important to you, you just don't want to do it. Like I know for me, if I, you know, if I have too much alcohol, then I know I'm going to be a slug the next day. And so by virtue of me understanding the value of performance, I have a very high value on performance, okay? But I also have a very high value on social interaction and fun. But what's interesting is I'm aware that my value on, on performance is higher than my value on social fun. So I can go out and have a lot of fun, but I don't have to have a few drinks. Because I know if I do indulge and I have a few too many drinks, then it's going to affect my performance on the court tomorrow. And that's something that's more important to me than, you know, necessarily having a, a drink of alcohol and, you know, having fun with my mates on a Friday night or a Wednesday night or any night for that matter. Because some people don't need an excuse or their mates around them in order to put substances in their body that don't, that don't agree with them. And don't get me wrong, I'm no insane. You know, I put plenty of stuff into my body over the years that hasn't made it, make it, work, made it work effectively. But I've been able to measure my performance based on what I put in it and what it comes out. Now, on the other side, when it comes to the fundamentals, it's do you know what strokes that you need to play? Do you know what strokes you need to master in order to master the game? The first one is psychology. You know, psychology is number one. The second one is strategic planning. Knowing from a stacking and a chunking perspective, do you know where you're trying to go in the next 10 years? Is that clear? And do you have an orientation and a direction? Is there a, is there a compass? And then what are the priorities, the high-level priorities that need to be completed in the next 12 months that are going to get us 10% further along the line in order to get there? And then from those priorities, are you able to prioritize those priorities so that you're only working on a very small subset, a very small chunk of those priorities in the next three months? And then from those priorities you're working on in the next quarter, are you able to break them down on a weekly basis into goals? And are you able to break those goals down on a daily basis into tasks? And that to me is a stacking process that is required. It's, it's the equivalent of knowing how to serve and return. Because if you can't serve and return, there's no point you going out on the tennis court because you're going to get your ass handed to you every time. And if you can't strategically plan in advance where you want to be in the next 10 years and then chunk that down in terms of, okay, at a high level, what are the priorities that need to be accomplished to get me 10% 
away along the road in the next 12 months, but then be able to prioritize those priorities by looking at of the priorities, because you might have 20 priorities, depending on the size of the company, 100 priorities that need to be completed in the next 12 months. But if you can't prioritize those priorities in a meaningful way, because you can't focus on 100 things at once, you can focus on maybe about three to five things in the next three months. So you have to be able to distinguish and prioritize of those 100 priorities, what are the three most important right now? And of those three priorities, they might look like, you know, big giant bulls or they might look like elephants. How do you eat them? Well, you've got to break it down. You've got to break it down on a weekly basis. And then you've got to break those things down that you're focusing on a weekly basis into a daily basis. And that to me is a stacking planning principle whereby you stack your plan and you reverse engineer it based on where you want to be in the next 10 years. The third fundamental is solid marketing and consistent marketing. For us, we focus on, you know, our returns are content marketing. It's digital advertising and strategic alliances and joint ventures. The fourth move is sales. Because if you're, if you're able to get your head in the game, if you've got a plan of where you need to go, okay, and you know how to deliver it, then all you need to do is generate leads for that business as long as you've got a service or a product that you can deliver. You learn how to market. Okay, great. Now I can market. Now I've got leads coming in. Now, how do I monetize those leads to create cash flow? I need to learn how to sell. Okay, and then once I sell, I'm now producing cash flow. And then I've got to be conscious enough to go, okay, that's stage four. Stage four is cash flow. Now what do I do with the money? And what do most amateurs do with the money? They buy watches, they buy cars, they buy experiences. What do professionals do? They reinvest into their equipment. They buy a better tennis racket. They buy better shoes. They hire a better psych coach or coach. They buy a better, um, you know, uh, they get a better trainer. They start training at better facilities. And that's the leadership and scale aspect where after sales is, you know, the first four steps or the first four fundamentals are getting to a point where we're producing solid positive cash flow. And then the fifth step, which I call leadership and scale, is about reinvesting into the leadership and the scaling of the organization whereby the business can continually and autonomously grow off its own fruition and get to a point within, you know, most of our clients in our K2 Elite, we would normally be able to get most businesses of any size and shape. And our clients range from 500,000 up to 300 million. But in most cases, we can get a business under management within about six to nine, in most cases, 12 months. And that requires leadership, that requires automation, but that requires an understanding of scaling within a plan or having a plan that enables you to scale that fundamentally gives you your life back so you can focus on the things that you're most most inspired by, but also allow you to do what you got into business for in the first place, which is probably have a little bit more of a life. So what's more important, brand, as Gary Vaynerchuk says, or sales? Uh, look, I, I, I think... You know, you, you're going to struggle to make sales if you don't have a good brand. And here's what I've learned. With a very powerful brand, sales is a lot easier. If you have no brand, then you need to be a lot more, what I'd say, high pressure, cutthroat, not necessarily, but you need to be a lot more uh, tactical in your sales approach in order to be able to convince people to buy your products and services. If you already have an established and a very well-known and a reputable brand, because here's what I know, I can drop a campaign any other day, any day of the week and generate, in most cases, a few thousand leads within a few days. Okay, but then being able to monetize those leads, if you're a cold brand and no one knows who you are, most of those leads will go to waste. If you're a hot brand where people know who you are and you do have a reputation, it's a much easier process to actually move people through the sales environment. So to me, it's like, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? And look, I honestly, <laughs> and from an evolutionary perspective, I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg. But what I do know is sales is a lot easier when you have a strong brand. And to me, business should be about the process of developing something that works with a lot more flow 
than resistance. And in most cases, if you don't have a strong brand, there's going to be a lot more resistance in your sales process. Here in the Middle East and in particularly here in Dubai, the, the real estate industry has been booming for a number of years as this city has grown exponentially in such a short period of time. There is an obsession with lead generation for all of the real estate brokers. Just to give you some perspective on it, there's, there's uh, at least 1,500 real estate brokerage businesses just here in Dubai just in the city of Dubai. So wow. just to give you an idea, um, and I could be, be lowballing the number just there. There's approximately 6,000 agents in Dubai. So big numbers, but they're, they're all wow. obsessed all obsessed with leads, leads, leads. And whether it's using the property portals yes. to get their leads, and we have them over here like you have in the state in Australia, um, whether it's running PPC campaigns or whatever it may be, it's leads, leads, leads. Nobody really gives two shits about brand. Because essentially their argument is they're selling the brand of the developer as opposed to selling themselves. Um, and for me, it's like un understand that if you're, you're known to be an expert at what you do within your marketplace, then your conversions will be higher. But again, it's just like, let's get more leads, let's get more leads, let's get more leads. Now, here's a statistic for you. On average, only 1% of the leads that are generated ever get converted. The best, the best is three on one company that I know. The best is three, but on average, it's 1%. So 99 out of 100 leads that come through, okay, even if they're interested, okay, don't convert. Now, the salespeople don't believe they need to learn how to be better salespeople because they've made a few sales before and they know what they're doing. So guess what? I've got some confidence. I know what I'm doing. And they also don't believe that they need to build a brand. What do you say to people that think and behave that way? Well, 1% conversion to me is, uh, it's a, look, I understand it's a very competitive market, but to me, the fastest way, and again, I'm going to perhaps um, contradict myself a little bit here. The fastest way to double any business is to be able to double the value of every sale or double your conversion rate to that the, the people that you're selling to. But in the real estate market, and this is a really good example because right now I love, there's a, there's a few TV shows that I actually really enjoy and one of them is called Million Dollar Listing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when you look at Ryan Serhant and he is the epitome of what I'd call someone who has integrated really good brand and really good salesmanship, okay? He's got great salesmanship, he's got great sales chops, but at the same time, you know, with the advice of someone like Gary Vaynerchuk, he's also had the opportunity to build an incredibly powerful and potent brand. And so for me, the reason that most people don't go down the brand route is because it takes a long time. It takes longer. It is slower. It's a slower burn. But what they don't realize is at sooner or later, that brand builds a level of momentum that builds a level of trust. And here's the thing that most people aren't aware of. It's called um, the pig, not the pig million, it's uh, the familiarity principle, the, what's it called, Paul? The mere exposure effect. Me, I'm, I should know this. The mere <laughs> exposure effect. Now, you're familiar with the mere exposure effect? No, tell me. Okay, you'll love this, and I'm sure your audience will love this as well, and every real estate agent in the world should be listening to this right now. The mere exposure effect is a psychological phenomena whereby people tend to develop a, a preference for things once they become familiar with them. It's also called the familiarity principle. Now, how this translates to a commercial environment, and you will know this from yourself, back in 2005 the average consumer needed to be exposed to a business a product a service or a brand on average 5.4 times in order for something to be triggered within them to go you know what i actually feel like i should reach out and have a conversation now not reach out and buy 
not reach out and hand over my credit card number, just reach out and have a conversation. In 2012, it was 12.8 exposures. And in 2019, 2020, they predicted it was as many as 20 exposures were required to build that same level of familiarity and trust. And let me ask you this question, Spencer, do you have to see things sometimes a few times before you feel comfortable to reach out and have a conversation with someone? All day long. And so this is what we know. So there's two types of sentiment here because when you look at Facebook advertising or PPC advertising, how many times are you seeing ads every single day where you see them and you go, me, if I see this ad one more time, I'm going to throw my computer out the window or I'm sick of seeing this ad. Do you ever have that experience? <laughs> Almost daily. <laughs> Every day, right? Whereas what we've got to understand, we have moved predominantly from a traditional media environment and traditional media has been apparent for the last 80 years. Traditional media was based on a concept called advertising and direct response. Okay, whereby, you know, the thing that funded all of these newspapers and TVs and everything, TV channels and everything else, everything that funded TV channels, everything that has funded media for the last hundred plus years has been advertising. And the only way that advertising works is if that advertising produces some form of a direct response. So there's only very few people in the traditional marketing or traditional media business who have the budgets, such as the Nikes and the McDonald's and everything else, to be able to brand their business to a point where they become the first choice. And you and I are like Google, okay? And in the absence of Google, we had the human brain. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to do a little experiment with you where I'm going to treat you like Google. I'm going to type a keyword into your brain, okay? And you're going to tell me the, most the number one response, okay? So when you type a, you know, a search term into Google, Google goes back to its referential index. It comes back and goes, here's the number one response based on the keyword that you've typed in there. Soft drink. Coke. Fast food. Um, KFC. There you go. And they're two very large companies who over a period of decades have been able to invest enormous amounts of money to capture top of mind space, the number one space in your brain right now. And that is incredibly valuable. But most people in traditional advertising didn't have the budgets to do that, so they engaged in what most people in traditional advertising did, which is what's called direct response, which is discount, uh, on sale, buy my stuff now, respond now, call now, be in the first 15. And in the traditional marketing environment, that culture was set very early on. But then along comes this thing called social media. It's not traditional media, it's social media. And the key word here being social. Now, if you're being marketed to in a networking event, is that normal? If someone comes up to you in a networking event and tries to say, is that normal? Are you going to get offended? Yeah, I get offended. It happens a lot, but I get offended. But most people would know that if they go to a networking event, someone's going to try and get their card and try and sell them. So if you're offended, then maybe you shouldn't go to a networking event, Spencer, because it's pretty obvious that that's why people go to networking events so that they can sell people. Okay, well, it's to a me, it's two, there's two different things here. There's, there's prospecting and networking. So for me, for me, networking events are about building a network, but people go there and they've got True. their business cards out. True. It drives me bloody mad. But, but yes. Okay, let me ask a better question. You know if you go to a networking event, you're going to get marketed to. 100%. Okay, but let's say you have a birthday party and you invite you know 50 of your best friends and everyone turns up with gifts, but one person doesn't turn up with gifts. They turn up wearing a sandwich board that says, buy my stuff now, and a hand and a fistful of brochures. And they start handing those brochures out to every single person at your birthday party, trying to get them to give them their details so that they could follow up and have a call with them next week. Now, would that be considered socially appropriate? No, hell no. No, because it's a social occasion. A networking event is a commercial occasion. A party is a social occasion. And see, what we've got right now is we've got networkers 
okay, showing up to birthday parties and polarizing the parties that they walk into. And this is what we've got to understand. Social media isn't a traditional environment. And so if you're using direct response, which 95% of people are, if not more, they're using direct response content you know, in a social environment and they're wondering why you know, they're only getting one lead, one converting one lead out of every hundred. Whereas if you start treating the environment with the respect that is due, it's a social environment. And so what do we do when we're at birthday parties? We talk to people, right? We have conversations. And in most cases, those conversations around, hey, what are you up to? Oh, I'm doing this. Yeah, what's been going on? Oh, I had this problem. Oh, really? Tell me about the problem. And what do we end up doing as collaborative human beings? We often try and talk and share our problems and solve each other's problems. And so to me, we've got to move away from the traditional direct response psychology. And don't get me wrong. I love, I was a direct response. I was a copywriter, okay, before I was anything else, you know, from a marketing and sales perspective. But in the social environment, that is a turnoff. That is repulsive. What is a turn on, what is attractive in the social environment is a utility perspective or what we refer to as utility marketing and understanding that if we can start conversations and if there's one thing I'd want people to take from this part of the conversations, it's this. Conversations are the new lead. It's not about lead generation anymore because why do we generate data? When we do a direct response campaign, what's the goal? Our goal is to generate what? Data. What data? First name, last name, email address, and ideally their mobile phone number as well. Why? So that we can market to those people by virtue, hope that they'll respond to that marketing, jump on the phone so that we can do what? Have a conversation and try and sell them. The social environment provides us this shortcut to be able to provide utility where we're actually providing and developing content that's helping people, that's provoking people to say, yeah, I've got that problem. Wow, that's really helpful. And when people say anything on a post, when people comment, when people direct message on any, on any platform, what is that? What's the genesis of a conversation? And we didn't even have to generate their data. Yet, here's a statistic for you. 89% of businesses on Facebook don't respond to comments or direct messages. That's like someone walking into your showroom and saying, oh, I'm really interested in that TV and you just turning around and walking away. 89% Spencer. Everybody's going for the quick win. Everybody's trying to sleep with the hot chick or the hot guy on the first night rather than going, hey, this is a social environment. Let's build a relationship. How do we build relationships? By sharing, by solving people's problems. You know, the, the two most powerful pieces of content that I create that I document is my life and me documenting my life fucking either coming together or falling apart because what do people do? They go, oh, I can relate to that. Oh, I can relate to going through a divorce. I can relate to having ADHD. I can relate to addiction. I can relate to dyslexia. I can relate to having a you know, challenge as a parent. And then they can also go, wow, you helped me solve a problem. So I can relate to you and you solve my problems. Hey, there's something about you that I really like. Let me comment. That is the genesis of a conversation. And that's how every single relationship in history has started through a conversation. And that is what most people, especially in the traditional sales oriented world, are missing. They're going for the lead and they're not going for the relationship. And so for me, the way that we distinguish between the two is by building a brand, you're building relationships. You're building a relationship, not just with a market, but with a key word and a key term and phrase. You know, because if you're a real estate agent, your number one goal should be when someone says the word real estate, they mention your name. But by just focusing on general, McDonald's didn't focus just on generating leads. Okay, KFC didn't focus just on generating leads. Coca-Cola, these companies are not lead gen, they don't even have databases for the most part. They are companies that have built brands by promoting and creating customer experiences and by virtue of exposure, 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 
exposure, you know, whether it be Spencer, real estate agent, Spencer, real estate agent, Spencer, helpful real estate agent, Spencer, relatable real estate agent, Spencer, real estate, Spencer, real estate. So two months from now, someone says, oh, I'm looking for a real estate agent. Okay, you know what? You should speak to Spencer. I don't know why, but, you know, he keeps popping up my feed. He's really helpful. I can really relate to the guy. Go and check him out. Versus, oh, no, let me forward you this ad that I keep seeing that annoys the shit out of me. That's not going to happen. Amen to all of that. <laughs> what role do you think that podcasts play in being able to build your brand? <laughs> well, I think podcasts are very important. And, um, you know, there's been many people who have been jumping on this bandwagon, myself included, because they enable a perspective um, into the individuals on a social level, but they also enable easy consumption. And to me, it's how do we make things easy to access and easy to consume? In 2014, I didn't miss it when Zuckerberg said this. No, was it 2011? It was in 2011, Zuckerberg said this. He said, by 2014, uh, Facebook will predominantly be a video platform. And that's when YouTube was the king of video and Facebook had just started to introduce the video features, right? And I remember Mark saying that in one of his announcements. I was like, I'm not going to ignore this. You know, at some point, you, you know, video is going to be dominant on these platforms. And so for me... Yeah, I just, I, I listen, I pay attention and podcast, you know, Facebook once upon a time was a great way to access information and download inf download text-based information. And then it made it really easy to, to watch and view and download, you know, and by download, I mean consume uh, video information. And now with social media and life and speed and COVID and kids and everything else, life is getting busier and busier and busier. And I don't know about you, but my life isn't getting slower, it's getting faster, Okay. And my ability and my desire to consume information isn't getting less, it's getting more. And so podcasts are an incredible way to provide a mechanism for people to consume branded content that's interesting, relatable, that solves problems. It's utility in nature if you're speaking to the problems of your market on the bus, whilst working out, on the train, in the toilet, when they wake up, whilst they're in the shower. It just makes it easy. It's just another model, a mode of content. And that's why Clubhouse is going off right now. It's going to be interesting to see the run on, on Clubhouse because um, much like Snapchat, um, you know, Instagram cut the balls off Snapchat the moment they introduced the stories feature because Snapchat wasn't so much a social platform as it was just a feature on a platform. Clubhouse, to me, it looks like a, it doesn't look like a social app. It looks like a feature on an app. And we're now seeing um, uh, Instagram releasing rooms which is going to be also video-based as well. So it's going to be interesting to see if, uh, if this inclusion or this addition um, completely thwarts. Because once upon a time, Instagram and Facebook, they tried to buy things. And now they're like, well, you know what? Maybe we don't even buy them anymore. We'll just rip it off. And I think we're going to see, uh, yeah, Clubhouse could go either way. I hope it keeps going. But um, to me, the, the rise of Clubhouse gives nothing but credit to the rise of podcasts because it's just easy to consume information. And you don't need to be watching. When, when you look at Clubhouse, I mean, it, I, I call it Crackhouse because the, when it first launched, I mean, in probably the, not the first launch, but when I got involved in it, it was probably the back end of January. And I started losing three, four hours of my life a day over a few <laughs> days being in these bloody rooms. And then what slowly started to evolve for me is there's, a, the, the, there's rooms out there where they have a lot of moderators. And I'm just not so sure that everyone that's moderating or answering questions knows their subject matter. So you see a lot of kind of like bullshit going on there as well. And I find that a bit frustrating and also worrying for people that are looking for answers. And so that for me is a little bit of an issue with Clubhouse at the moment. Do you think that's fair? Look, I, to be honest, I don't know. I have maybe spent, and this is probably going to be quite shocking considering you know the space that I play in, 
I've maybe spent an hour on Clubhouse. I have not invested a lot of time. I already invest a significant amount of time across a number of different platforms. We are about to launch a Clubhouse strategy probably in the next two to three weeks. Um, but to be honest, when I saw Clubhouse come out, I, I said when it came out, I said, this thing's going to fly. Um, but I just, based on a level of many variables, I was like, you know what? My life is busier enough. And I didn't have, you know, three hours a day to go down the realms of crack house. <clears throat> and when I did, you know, cause if I go back to 2016, when I, I went all in on Facebook, I was spending six to seven hours a day on Facebook, you know, cause I was uploading my own videos. I was doing all the community management. I was responding to every single question, you know, every single direct message, six, seven hours a day. And, you know, by virtue of doing that for, let's call it three or four years, I actually started to, <laughs> I, it started to affect my eyesight, my short sight, because I spent so much time on my device. <laughs> yeah. And mate, this shit is real. You know, we look at, and also digital dementia, you know, we're starting to see now the effects on the brain, on neurology, on memory, on recall, on communication. Um, you know, it's mimicking the effects of dementia. And so right now, I'm not looking for any excuse to spend more time on technology. I'm looking for excuses to spend less time on technology. And look, that may not align with, you know, what others are saying, like, because I know Gary's all in on everything that's popular. And, you know, so he should be. That's that's where he's playing at a cutting edge. But for me, I haven't gone in on Clubhouse, so I can't really answer that question. And we will be launching on it, but I'm going to be launching in a very leveraged way where I'm, I know enough to be dangerous but I'm not going to be spending, you know, a disproportionate amount of time on there in order to build a fan base just to be able to lose more time with my son or my team or anyone else to, to, to dominate another platform. Okay, last question, and let's just talk about this. As you mentioned, your son, social media and Noah and getting his own iPhone at some point or watching parents <laughs> that give their kids, you know, we see them in the restaurants, you know what goes on, they're in the restaurant, the kid's been annoying. A couple of years yeah. back now, it was dad's iPad that they had. Now they're sitting there with their own phones. How do you feel about that? And what's your plan with Noah to make sure that uh, you do the best for him? Yeah, look, my, 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 um, when Noah was much younger, when he was non-verbal and we we're at restaurants I, or on a plane, I had no issue giving him an iPad. Um, and I, not that I'd give it to him for an extended period of time, but you know, if we're at dinner, rather than him throw forks on the ground, or or you know make loud noises that would intimidate you know the the waiters and other people around us, I'd just put an iPad on, put it in front of him, so that you know m my ex-wife and I could enjoy a nice meal. At the time, um, now he's at an age where he can he can converse, he can actually have communication. Like um, when he's with me, because I have my son 50% of the time, my, my, my ex-wife and I obviously are no longer together, um, but we have a complete iPad ban in the house for him. So he has, um, at this point, almost zero access to technology. And again, I know there are other people out there who go, well, that, that's terrible. Don't you want your kid to know how to be able to use the technology as it's comes through? Well, yeah, he can use an iPad. You know, any, any child at this point in the, in the game knows how to use an iPad. It's not that he can't use the iPad. But what I've discovered is there is a direct behavioral impact when he's using it, you know, because if he uses an iPad for an extended period of time, there is a, a very obvious emotional and mental impact for him. And it may not be for every other kid on the planet, but when you start looking at the, you know, the, the science and the data behind how these devices are affecting kids' brains. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with moderation, but m most kids don't have the ability this is what we've got to understand. Kids don't have a fully developed nor fully connected frontal lobe. And the frontal lobe is the executive function. It's a critical decision-making. 
you know, cortex. Whereas, you know, the reptilian, the mammalian brain, it has almost no impulse control. If you put a piece of food in front of a hungry dog, unless it's incredibly well trained, it's just going to eat the food. It's not going to be able to stop itself because it has no impulse control. And when you give a kid an iPad or a device that has the ability to stimulate dopamine at the levels that these devices do, and they have no inherent impulse control for the most part, they are opening themselves up for, you know, what we'd call, um, whether it be device addiction, internet addiction, um, or even increasing and amplifying the effects uh, of things or conditions and labels like ADHD. And with my son, he has many of the same characteristics as me. And I'm aware if he uses the iPad, he has a lot for a too long a period of time. He has much greater troubles when it comes to focusing and attention here at school. So, you know, because I've tested this. If he, if I let him use the iPad for 15 to 20 minutes in the morning, does it affect his schoolwork? Because he has his own teacher at the moment, has done since COVID. And she says, yes, every single time he uses the iPad in the morning, it affects his, his, his ability to concentrate at school. So it's an absolute no. Every time he uses the iPad, almost, and we have very strict agreements when it does get used, because it is a there is a complete ban, but there's every now and then we'll use it. But when we use it, there's very strong frames that are created. Okay, you can use the iPad, but please be aware if you use the iPad and there's any emotional outbursts, if there's any whinging, moaning, or complaining, you know there will be some consequences, and that, those consequences in most cases will mean you won't get the iPad again. And so he's learning how to develop, you know, critical decision making by going well. If I want to use the iPad, I have to be aware of my behaviour and be conscious of my behavior if I use the iPad, because one of the things that daddy has noticed is when I use the iPad, typically I'm more emotional, okay? I'm, you know, uh, more prone to whinging and moaning and everything else in between. And, and um, for me, I just, I wanna give him the best possible chance that I can. And I don't think giving kids full access to technology is giving them the best chance at having a great life. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't already follow this man, please, please, please go and follow his work. He's got such great value to offer and you could benefit from it. Kerwin Ray, thank you so much for taking your time and coming to share it with us today. Spencer, thank you so much, mate. I really appreciate your your endeavor. I appreciate what you do and the amount of lives that you're impacting and also your persistence because I know this has taken a bit of time. Uh, as I said to you earlier, my, my calendar is sometimes like a professional grade Tetris game um, and the fact that you've hung in there mate I, I deeply appreciate it so I hope we can do it again at some point in the future perfect awesome thank you so much well hopefully you enjoyed that episode as much as I did I mean you know I could sit talking to that guy for hours and hours and hours it's taken a while to get him on the show he truly knows a lot about a lot of things that can help us in our personal lives our businesses our families and it's just great that he's so willing to share um, there's a few bleeps which you probably have heard now. Um, I apologise for that, but he's just being his authentic self, and I don't, I didn't want to take that authenticity away from him. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with, and partners for the podcast are Najahi Events and Najahi Tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries, Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. 
I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, then please give me a five-star rating if you've enjoyed it. If you're listening to it on other podcasting apps, then give me a follow, leave comments. The more people that hear about this, the better it's going to be for the podcast. So that's my selfish request from you. But also these are inspirational stories and I think more people should hear them. Anyway, I'll see you on the next episode.